I'm Martin Moda and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. Listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics, and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 236. I'm your host, Annika Harrison, and joining me for the show is my co host, Pontus Bergmann. Hello! Hey, son, hey, son! How are you, Annika? I'm really good. School started again, but I'm doing okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're you're working now. That's good. Yeah. At least one of us is working. That's great. <laughs> is it is it really hot in in Germany still? It was very hot last week, which was really hard because everybody had to wear masks, but we can't use fans or oh. AC because they swirl the the air and the aerosols around. Right. So yeah, but it's okay, and we're busy. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, we've, we've had a How little bit of uh, hot weather as well around, not too bad, like 25, 26, maybe 28 some days. So uh, it's, uh, well, for a Swedish summer, it's been very good, actually. Mm. <laughs> And how have you been? I've been very well. As I just alluded to, I'm not working at the moment. So it's a bit of a prolonged vacation, I guess. And we've playing a lot of golf. My uh, wife and my son and myself, we just came back a few hours ago from a uh, golf course, which we hadn't played on before. It was great. It was fun. We did swear a lot and we were very, very frustrated at one point during the course. <laughs> But in the end, we came in. Everybody played extremely well on the last hole of the whole course. So everything is forgiven. We're very happy now. And we all got uh, enough points to satisfy our egos. So that's why it was probably very good for your neck too, right? <laughs> oh, yes. My neck is much better now. You can see, I can do this. I can do that. No. Oh, sorry. This is an audio. Yeah, listeners, you medium. can't really see it, but he no, just did some I just did a somersault backwards while... Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. But yes, I, I feel very good. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And what have you been up to in the last few days? I am uh, working on a few projects for the Swedish skeptics and I was invited to uh, the Canberra skeptics in Australia. It's, it was, I guess, Science Week last week and uh, the Canberra skeptics had a panel debate on, um, well, they said it was on Sunday, but since it was Australia, their Sunday is my two o'clock in the morning, Sunday morning. But it was a, a panel debate called Successes and Failures of Science, Skepticism and Critical Thinking. And they invited me uh, to join a panel with uh, Susan Gerbic, who we all know and love, and yes. Stephen Novella and Jessica Singer, who is the president of the Australian Skeptics. So it was a great time, except for the timing, because it was <laughs> in the middle of the night. But um, 
I think some of us said some very good things. I'm not sure I was the most intelligent there in the panel, but I do encourage everybody to look up the recording of this unless you were up in the middle of the night to watch it live. And we will put that as a link in the show notes. You can you can see for yourself uh, what we did. But it was an interesting discussion. Uh, we talked about successes in the skeptical movement, also about challenges, what uh, we struggle with, and uh, mentioned a few things that we all believe we could do better as, as a movement. It sounds really good. It sounds really interesting. I definitely have to check that out. Mm-hmm. And it's also really cool that you that you were on this panel with uh, Steve Novella. It's, yes, it's just very cool. That, <laughs> and also uh, the others, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, I was very honored to be invited to this. The, because it is an honor, it's like really cool. <laughs> okay, I was really <laughs> cool to be invited to this. Yes, you are really cool. <laughs> yes, apparently. But we have something also very cool for you listeners tonight. This is not an ordinary show. This is an interview episode, and uh, we talked to Martin Moder from the Science Busters in Austria. And we just hang up on him. We just had a, a very, very cool and interesting uh, interview with him, and uh, I hope uh, our listeners will enjoy it. Because we did, yeah. So yes. let's crack on with it. <laughs> Every now and then we interview someone whose works we think to be of interest to our listeners and skeptics around Europe. Martin Moder is a molecular biologist with a PhD from the Center of Molecular Medicine in Vienna in Austria. In 2014 he was elected the first European Science Slam champion. He is now involved in the Gesellschaft für Kritisches Denken or the Society for Critical Thinking and also in Science Busters in Austria who, among other things, hand out the yearly Heinz Uberhumor Award for Science Communication. Martin, welcome to the ESP. Hello, hello. Nice to be here. Bonjour. Yeah, <laughs> very good of you to be here. So maybe we should start just with yourself. And um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your background? Wow, I think you summarized it uh, quite well, actually. So I'm, I'm, I'm from the field of molecular biology. I was mm. mostly working on things etching on cancer research and yeah at some point i just noticed that doing science is nice but doing science and talking about science is even a bit nicer so i started to do some uh, science communication stuff and 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 those how was it called science slams were actually among the first things that i stumbled into yeah do do people abroad know what a science slam is uh, not, that... not necessarily. Please enlighten us. Yeah. yeah, I think what's more popular are those, um, how they call poetry slams. Yeah. Well, it's basically the same concept, except for you're not being very poetic, but you're being very scientific. So, so people present their own research for 10 minutes or something, usually without PowerPoint, but it varies between countries. And yeah, you try to make it as interesting as you can to the general public, which... It's not always. It's not always so easy, you know. Of course, you know, but but yeah, no, some, it it, you, it is not easy. We always say yeah. here on the show that we need to be better communicators, and we need science people to be better communicators. So we appreciate that uh, some of you actually try to do that. Yeah, because you know, it's so it's so difficult to take a step back, and because in the end, you become an idiot 
in all aspects except for your field you know yeah you I, yeah. i've met people they've worked for decades on this one phosphorylation site of this one protein and it's so important that those crazy crazy people exist but you know <laughs> yeah. when they talk to people who are who don't have a specific interest in this one phosphorylation side of those uh, one protein things get very complicated to listen to There's no and, communication uh, there anymore <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyways that's what this format tries to avoid and and uh, take maybe a, a bit more a general view of the scientific topics and uh, i think it's it's interesting for the scientists too if they actually see that people find the stuff that they're doing interesting yes definitely yeah and how did you as a person get to science and skepticism well the way i i came to science was uh, there are some people you know they you see them as kids and you know they're gonna become scientists that's not me uh, i was i don't know I was very interested in science to begin with, maybe due to my family. My father is a statistician, my sister is a physicist. So yeah, that maybe tilted me a bit towards it. But I always wanted to become a policeman, actually. <laughs> and, uh, and then, yeah, at some point that stopped because after military service, I noticed that this authoritarian stuff, it's, maybe it's not so my thing. And I had no idea what to do. So basically, I went to the... Uh, it's called AMS. It basically, it's for unemployed people who don't know what to do. And they have these elaborate tests where they basically um, test what you're good at and what you're interested in according to your personality types and so on. And basically, three options came out for me. Number one was policeman. Okay, I had that. <laughs> didn't, didn't work out. Number two was dog trainer. Okay. And I thought due to a false positive result at the time that I was allergic to dogs. So that was off the table. And the only thing left was biologist. Yeah, of course. Um, What else is there? And that's Yeah, and that's <laughs> not a very victorious story to tell, but that's how I stumbled into biology. And I wasn't very passionate about it to begin with, because, you know, when you start biology, you... You have this expectation of that it's gonna be as it was in school, but it's very different. You start out with chemistry, physics, mathematics, which is all cool and important, but but I had some troubles. Yeah. Um, and it, it it took basically until the very end of my bachelor studies until I noticed, hey, wait a moment, this is a very cool time to be a geneticist because things emerge that enable experiments that were just unthinkable five years ago. Yeah. And I will never forget the first time when I sat on a PC and I had this text file in front of me and it said ATGTGC and it was just a very long line of letters of genetic code. And I knew that whatever I'm going to type into this text file will be within a living organism two weeks after that. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, man... That's a nice feeling. Uh, so, so what did you type? <laughs> yeah, did, did you feel a little bit of moment there of the mad scientist? Now I'm going to create uh, something very strange. You know, if, if scientists wouldn't be crazy in some regards, sometimes many cool things wouldn't have been invented. So, yeah, I think yeah, that goes uh, for all disciplines, really. You have to be a little bit crazy to be good at what you're doing, I guess. So, so tell us about the Science Busters. What, what is that and uh, how did you become involved in that and what are you doing there? Yes, so basically it's a, it's a science comedy group. They started about 10 years ago. This was before I was part of it. Yeah. It was founded by this 
physicist called Heinz Oberhummer, in, in Austria at least, he was very known uh, within the skeptics community because basically he was the founder of the Austrian skeptics community. This is what you um, pronounced in the very beginning, this Gesellschaft für kritisches uh, Denken, which is called Society for Critical Thinking, which is one of those subgroups of the global uh, skeptics community, basically the Viennese subgroup. And as far as I know, he was the one who at least co-founded it. I don't know. Do, do, did you guys know Heinz Oberhummer? No. Well, we, no. we have mentioned him a, a few times, yeah. but uh -huh. please refresh our memories because it, all of our information is secondhand. So. Oh, yeah, sure. He's one of the coolest guys I've ever met. Um, he was actually a very brilliant physicist. So he was top in his field as far as I'm concerned. And uh, when he retired... He wanted to continue doing science communication. So he basically filled out this form to apply for some, I don't know, grant for science communication. And the initial idea was to find another guy and together they would present the science of some movies, right? I'm just telling here what I was told because this was before I noticed all those things. And the problem being two scientists by themselves tend to make things very long and not always the easiest to follow let's put it like this yeah, yeah. Uh, so they had this idea okay man we need to choose it up so we need some comedian to keep people focused so to speak and they ended up with one um, martin puntigan because at, at some point he was doing a, a sketch about some elemental particle in a particle accelerator okay. as part of his comedy show so they thought this might be the guy, right? He's very interested in natural sciences. So they took him and then it all, I don't know, developed and got very cool. But yeah, at some point, uh, Heinz Oberhummer died. And also the other guy, which is also a neurophysicist called Werner Gruber, he also had other projects. So they were looking around for new people. And that's that's basically how I got to be there in the very end, together with, with a lot of other scientists. So basically we are seven people now and playing shows on different topics, like the science of Game of Thrones. Mm. Uh, and now we're going, we're doing a Corona special currently and so on. Cool. That's the good thing. You have enough science in basically everything, so you can do shows about yeah. it. And you do uh, award the Heinz Oberhummer Award every year as well, right? Exactly. Yeah. So basically this award goes to some person that we consider amazing in science communication this year on the 24th of november in vienna it goes to mighty nguyen kim uh, she's super popular in the german speaking room she's a young chemist who is doing lots of youtube shows and she, she, she's one of the people that you know many people when they do science communication i'm also guilty of that we try to break things down to keep them very simple and and that's a fair strategy and my impression is that Mai is keeping it at a very complex level, but still manages to keep it digestible for everyone. This is, I don't know, you have to be a king of the field to be able to do this. And, yeah, and I think she's well very deserved. Very good, yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing. I can't tell you all too much about the Oberhummer Award because my role usually was that me and my former heavy metal band are playing songs on stage for those people. Uh, or together with these people. So usually when the Heinz Oberhummer Award uh, actually took place, I was backstage practicing playing the drums and double bass. So <laughs> I've never actually seen it live. 
I saw that on the resume when we did some research on, or I did some research on you as a person. Oh, yeah. We I got a lot of musical references. So, so maybe we should make a small detour and talk a little bit about your musical career as well. <laughs> so when I was about, I don't know, maybe 15 or something, me and a friend of mine, we were forming a band. So his name was Matthias. And we just said, we're going to make a band. The problem was no one of us was playing an instrument at the time. Which is suboptimal, of yeah. course. Well, um, yeah, well, it also is a positive aspect because uh, therefore we had a lot of time to really think about a good name. Um, <laughs> and what we came up with is at some point, Matthias said, man, if we don't find a good band name, we are. And he said it in German. He said, wir sind am Arsch. <laughs> and it basically means if you translate it literally, we are on ass. So we called ourselves on ass. And that's the way we made music then. And we were writing some songs. We were actually learning instruments afterwards. <laughs> Good idea. So, <laughs> Good move. so name first, then instruments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but as you can imagine, our first songs weren't that good, although they had great content. We were singing about the ozone layer and how it's going to kill us all and everything. Um, but at some point, we really went more and more into the progressive metal genre until we kind of got uh, frustrated by the first songs that we did. So we changed our name to distance ourselves from our former selves. And then we had a stupid name that no one remembered. So, uh, no, yeah, not even the beginning you, was right? funny, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're still uh, having the band is still on and you're still doing things now. Well, yeah, we're playing once a year during the Heinz Oberhumer Award. <laughs> that, that's basically <laughs> okay. it. So anyways, the Society for Critical Thinking, that's basically where I got to meet Heinz Oberhumer. Mm -hmm. He had this alpaca farm. Uh, is alpaca an English phrase? Uh, yes, yeah. I think uh, it's yes. the same name. Yeah, alpaca. Yeah, that that uh, I, I once visited him there. That's basically where I got to know him. And a few weeks before he died, I think it was two weeks, I, he wasn't sick at the time. They had this idea that basically they were through with physics, right? After almost 10 years. Not that they were through with it, but maybe it was a good idea to widen the concept for other sciences. So they wanted to make science busters and friends and invite in scientists from other disciplines. Uh, so I met with them, uh, with him and Martin Puntigam, the comedian, for a beer. And two weeks later, I heard that Heinz Oberhumer died. And I was, of course, it was a tragedy. And I thought the science busters are history with that. But then what, uh, this was actually four years ago or five years ago tomorrow. So it's, it's almost... The anniversary. Uh, hmm? Yeah. Anyways, one year later, Martin Puntigam uh, mailed me and said that they want to keep doing the science busters with different scientists and, and it, it worked, which was a surprise to me even, but it, it works very well. And now that's what we're doing. Yeah. Great. I, um, I mentioned the science busters on this podcast before and I quoted the question, can you get infected by COVID through a fart? <laughs> yes. That was in the program of uh, your next um, Corona specials. And then we pretty much asked ourselves, can you and why or mm -hmm. why not? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's the nice thing about science. Sometimes the things that sound most absurd are actually very important. Of course, it's an important question whether you can infect yourself with a fart. And that's, that's part of the scientific studies. Not yet with the coronavirus because it's very novel, you know. Um, money is limited and maybe that's not the primary route that the pandemic uh, virus tends to take. 
But there are studies testing whether you can infect yourself with some forms of other bacteria or viruses within the gut through farting. And the reason is if you have surgery, for example, right? Maybe you're lying there with your heart open. Hmm. Could some pathogens come in? So basically they did a study where they just let people or participants fart into Petri dishes and see whether something grows. And it turned out, yes, apparently some material, in that case bacteria, is coming through. And that's interesting, I think. But the, the good news is uh, you can avoid this. I, I have a suggestion. I, I don't know where you're yeah. going with yeah, this, yeah. but I just think maybe we should use our face masks on a different place of the body. <laughs> <laughs> you can use it additionally, but it turns out wearing pants is actually enough. Hmm. And surgeons usually wear pants in the in the OR. I thought hey, you don't know what they're doing when you're under <laughs> narcotics. No, but I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's actually some uh, questions that we occupy yourself with. Uh, we we have a new show that is the Corona special that we're playing every Friday through August. And one of the other questions is: So the Austrians they bought a lot of toilet paper. I guess they did it everywhere. No, they did. Yes. And here they also bought a lot of yeast. Yeah, same here. <laughs> mm -hmm. That happened too. The hypothesis for most people was that people, uh, they're just baking a lot and they're eating a lot and then shitting a lot. But there could be another reason because it, as it turns out, what do you do if you have so much toilet paper? There is actually a straightforward way to make alcohol out of toilet paper. And that's one of the, and you don't need much more except for yeast and one enzyme. And that's one of the things that we try to teach people on stage. How do you take toilet paper? You can break it down to sugar and then you can ferment it to alcohol. <laughs> I have and never heard this before. I, I am gobsmacked. I had no, no idea. So that's why go. people were buying all the to toilet paper. Now it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, you know, in, in the end, paper is mostly uh, consisting of cellulose. And cellulose, uh, you know, it's a very long biological polymer, but on a molecular basis, it consists of separate glucose molecules that are connected with one another. And we can't cut them, otherwise we could eat grass and stuff like that. But there are enzymes, for example, in fungi, Aspergillus niger is one of them, who have an enzyme called cellulase. And using this enzyme, if you adjust the pH and keep it for two days on 50 degrees Celsius, they can break down the cellulose to glucose. And then you have a sugary substance. And if the, the moment you have a sugary substance, you can ferment it using yeast. If you do it without oxygen, they ferment the sugar to alcohol. And you can actually do that. Wow. So did you drink toilet paper drinks before? <laughs> Some good shit, I hear. <laughs> <laughs> it's important that to take very fresh ingredients in that regard. <laughs> So, of course, obviously, you're involved in the science busters and all kinds of different sciences when it comes to the communication of it. Is there any kind of pseudoscience or pseudomedicine, maybe, that, that makes you really, really angry as a skeptic? I have to think about it. I mean, the thing is, I, I tend not to get angry as long as I'm not directly involved. Okay. Maybe it sounds a bit egocentric. There was, there was once that I got very angry because they wanted me to pay money. So that, that's where I get angry. <laughs> that's basically what got me into the skeptics movement. So mm -hmm. I was living uh, in a, how is it called? So a house where many people are living, right? An apartment and, house. Yeah. Uh, an apartment, yeah. 
What a complicated word. You managed to say Gesellschaft für kritisches Denken and I have to stop at apartment because it's... You don't know how long I had Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Anyway, so we were living in Mödling, which is in Lower Austria, and they have a very kalkhaltig, a very chalky water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's not how you say it. That's how you say it. So they I wanted to... Okay, fair enough. I'll continue in the meantime. So they wanted to buy some filter to get rid of the chalk. Mm. Yeah, you know, most people just wanted a regular filter, but there were some that were wanted some of this esoteric stuff that energizes water and whatever, and they thought it's going to cure all diseases. So the water was very calciferous or limey, right? Calciferous, there you go, what a word. So anyway, half of the people wanted to, to buy this super expensive uh, bullshit, basically, that would cost five times the money and probably not do anything so i had to argue with them and everything i found on google was basically stuff from the austrian skeptics mm. community because one of them got sued from the producer at some point and he went to the internet and collected all the evidence to say why this is bullshit and why it should be legal to call it bullshit and basically he won that round and yeah i thought hey these guys are cool i might just go to the meetings and it was fun Yeah, um, great. And that's basically it. So, so yeah, that's where I get angry. That's where I get angry is where many, many people die or where I have to pay marginal sums of money. Yeah, and, and, and scams, basically. People trying to scams, rip you yeah. off uh, with yeah. bullshit products. Yeah, but then again, as long as it's not me, I'm mostly, I'd, I'd mostly consider it interest. <laughs> so the, the topics that I tend to occupy myself with within the skeptics community are things related to genetics mm -hmm. mostly so you stick to what you know the best right yeah i think that's a good strategy otherwise i'm the one talking bullshit probably at ah. some point i started out with green genetics with genetically modified um, food basically because at some point i noticed that the things i thought to be true in that area were not true And that was super frustrating. So I had to read up on it for, for a very long time. And after years, I noticed that, okay, what people, including myself a few years ago, would have considered self-evident is not what it appears to be. There's much more positive to say about this stuff than I would have considered. And I wanted people to know, I, 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 but, but it was not that I was mad at someone. It was just that I thought, hey, if something doesn't turn out as I would have expected, I find that super interesting and I thought maybe others find it interesting too. What, what did you find that was most surprising? I personally thought that uh, there must be evidence that there is some health downside to genetically modified foods. But as it turns out, and there are good reviews and they're funded publicly and there's a lot of data on that. If you find any differences in health aspects, genetically modified food tend to be better. Right, you mm -hmm. find less toxins in them. I'm talking about fungal toxins, etc. Basically, it turns out that, that maybe what was shocking me most is that the people who seem to profit most from genetically modified crops are the people who have the least people in third world countries, and this was so contrary to the anecdotes that I was used to. Mm -hmm. So the big Monsanto scary thing is wasn't really true then. Well, I wouldn't say that, of course, Monsanto is big and what's big is always scary. But, you know, as it turns out, at the end of the day, people buy their stuff because they tend to have higher yields. 
make more money and and also the use of pesticides in total goes down so i know there are there are problems and i would say monopolization is definitely one of them if we stay with big and scary but if i look at everything that can be measured in that area the upside seems to be so much more heavy than the downside hmm. It's hard to compress those things in a few statements. Usually when I give those lectures, they're one to two hours, but I just thought that is super interesting. Definitely. Yeah. I just thought, because I'm very into the German skeptics movement, mm -hmm. I asked myself if Austria has the same topics, the same problems they're running into, or if it's, if it's pretty much different from, from Germany. You mean the problems that the skeptics occupy themselves yes. with? Yeah, yeah. Homeopathy, of course, it's, uh, it's also very big topic i don't think there are much differences between the german and the austrian skeptics i try to every year go to these uh gvup conferences i don't really see a difference i think there are differences within the communities basically what they try to argue i don't know i haven't been to a meeting for a while but i remember there was this big internal discussion whether we should put religious superstitions also on the agenda And as far as I realized, this is a discussion that comes up every few years. And they always come to the same conclusion. Well, of course, it's superstition too. But for some reason, still, that's another category that other people are more competent in discussing. Do you agree with that? What, what side of the story are you? Agree with whether it's superstition? No, no. Well, I think most of us yeah. in the skeptic movement think that it is superstition. But do you think we should engage more? against religious I, superstition or should we leave it be i think if you want to argue against religious superstition you actually need a shitload of knowledge about religion mm -hmm. and i think that this competence is not very widespread within the skeptics community which is mostly driven i have the feeling by the natural sciences where there's actually a lot of competence But although I have my own position towards religion and uh, come to the conclusion that no, factually, there's nothing in it, I wouldn't have the knowledge, for example, to say something with substance about this topic to someone who is actually very, I don't know, well-read in the field. I can just say, no, I don't think there was a snake with an apple, but I, I don't think you win everything, anything with that. No. So again, you stay yeah. with what you know, molecules and, and biology and genetics. Yeah. Also, you know, as long as we talk about something where there are studies that you can refer to, then we can talk about evidence. But, you know, the religions, they were very good in making themselves seemingly immune to criticism by not ever referring to any evidence. So... I wouldn't know what I would argue except for where is the evidence. And that's a boring argument in the long run. Yeah. The only thing I can think of there is the evolution. I don't know if mm -hmm. you have a lot of creationists in, in Austria. <laughs> I don't think so. I've never met even one of them. Mm. Then again, you know, uh, that's the thing. I, 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 I think hardly any religious people are dogmatic religious that they say, yes, I think there were two people in the beginning. And I think evolution never took place. So I think you would fight problems that hardly exist. Mm. And of course, I'm living in a bubble, right? People I know tend to be people I consider smart. And <laughs> a lot of them are religious. But, you know, they're all these, these cherry-picking religious guys that think, yeah, yeah, of course, there's evolution and homosexuality is cool and everything. 
But still, I think there's something above us that is watching us and it's very vague and and they keep it so vague that there's uh, nothing left to debunk. And I would even argue if you keep it so vague that it doesn't influence anything you do, then I wouldn't see any reason in why you should smash this belief at this point. Um, mm. Not every belief is harming people, I would say. No. I would even argue sometimes, even though it's irrational, and maybe that's something where people could argue, but I, I think not everything that is irrational is necessarily bad. And, and many skeptics that I know probably wouldn't share this position. But I personally wouldn't argue that sheer rationality is always the best strategy in every regard. But that's a deep rabbit hole. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Yes. Yeah. On my part, I think we should be rational because I think irrational ideas tend to mm-hmm. be contagious from one area which is not very important into areas which is important. So I think we should yeah. keep it to minimum. But I do agree that there is oh, yeah. a discussion there to be had and it's not as simple. I, I think I'm absolutely with you when we say you say we should be rational. I'm just wondering, I think even if you are rational, you this is a problem that I stumbled upon within my latest book. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be rational towards achieving a goal that has to be sometimes set irrationally. This is what I mean by this. My, my latest book is about human optimization. Mm-hmm. And also it's a big critique on the word optimization because you cannot neutrally define what constitutes an optimization and what not because you have to set something as an ideal first and setting an ideal to a certain degree is necessarily um willkürly, how would you say you, you don't have any rational means yeah. to neutrally determine an ideal and i think that's where you you stumble into problems that's also why sheer rationality I would argue sometimes does not help you with ethical problems. I sometimes had this issue when I was talking about animal experimentation, which I consider as something, uh, at least in medicine, that we cannot do without at the moment. But there is no rational way of determining how many mice one should be allowed to kill to save one human. No. I see this as the, the limits of rationality. We can set a certain degree and then say, okay, let's use the rational skills to lower the number of mice necessary. Yeah. But there are certain questions that can't be answered, I'd say rational, uh, with rationality, but probably... With arbitrariness. Yeah. Arbitrariness is the word I was looking for. Maybe I'm talking about a very different point than what we were initially uh, talking about. No, but it's interesting. And I do agree with you. I think science Mm. is not a guide to ethical things. But then again, I don't want this to sound as if uh, religion was. Ah, that's true. Religion itself is arbitrary, but... Yes, agreed. So we're just lost. We have no idea. Someone (laughs) has to come up with anything and (laughs) no but that's why we need and some skeptics haven't i think realized that that's why we also need philosophy because yeah that discipline can Mm. perhaps help us with ethical problems Mm. again you as you said i cannot prove to you scientifically that it wouldn't be bad to murder a Mm. certain bad guy yeah We, we just feel that murder is always bad and i feel that but i can't prove it mathematically Mm. so and yeah. so we shouldn't try to do it that way either. 
Yeah. Then again, the philosophy can you can lead you to very dark places. I mean, yes, you know, you you could. Cons I I guess Karl, is Karl Marx considered a philosopher? I think so to some extent. I guess, yeah, I, I guess, guess yes. Well, maybe he was a cool guy, but you know, his ideas they led to so much suffering. Yes. And uh, but then again, here's here's my issue. I wouldn't consider anything that Marx proposed irrational. In fact, I might consider it more rational than most other ideologies. And it was absolutely with good intentions. Uh, yeah. You know, make everybody have yeah. the same amount of money, the same pay, blah, blah, blah. Every, we should take care of everybody. The problem is that the methods didn't work in practice, in real life. Yeah, yeah. Backfired quite badly. Yeah, I think because he didn't factor in that people are human <laughs> and they will <laughs> want to be like richer than the neighbor. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe if he had more data, <laughs> maybe if he would have been rational on the basis of more knowledge, things could have turned out better, but I don't know. So we need philosophy yeah. and science together. So, but, that, but, but maybe that wasn't the, the rabbit hole we wanted to go into in this <laughs> interview. Oh, I love those rabbit holes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they make very, very good conversations, I think. Right. Yeah. Though you get yourself in a lot of trouble. Well, no, <laughs> we, can, we can be political, I think. All <laughs> yes. right. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, we've now established that we're not for religion and we're also not into Marx too much. So <laughs> guess guess we're good. We have common ground now. <laughs> um, but to drag you up from this rabbit hole, <laughs> I know that you have been very active on um, the German life discussions of Wild Mix with oh, yeah. uh, Tommy Krabweis. And I know that you had a lot of topics there. So which were your favorite a topic so far with, that you talked about at Wild Mix. Maybe you should define what Wild Mix yeah, is. Yeah, maybe also explain what it is. <laughs> well, my favorite topic was the one that we basically picked because of me, uh, where we were talking about human optimization. It's, it's just such an interesting topic, it's especially for me as a geneticist, since, you know, we have all these new tools and, you know, the first designer babies just were born a few years ago in China, you know, and, and people had this rough feeling that, okay, so basically we can do it now. What is possible? And the reason why I, I found this question so interesting is because I generally wanted to know what is possible. Because we have now the, the possibility to alter the human genome with incredible precision. And it's not hard. It's, it's not the question anymore whether we can do it. It's the question whether we want to do it. Yeah. So I basically took myself a year to deeply read into that and just try to figure out what is actually possible, what is not possible and what might soon be possible. And, and that leads you to various paths about, okay, what does it actually mean if a trait is considered altered genetically? Does it mean only because something is hereditable that you can change it genetically? And those are concepts that are actually very complicated to understand and explain because you can have traits that are highly hereditable but you might not see many differences between certain populations and and even if a trait is considered highly hereditable it doesn't mean that you as a person are too much influenced by it can you give an example for one of these traits uh yeah let me give you an example uh <laughs> Maybe something simple. Let's take the BMI, the body mass index, right? If you if you do genome-wide association studies or twin studies, or ba basically they all show the same picture, 
which is that you have a heritability of about 70%. Now, what that means is often misunderstood. People tend to interpret this as, okay, it's almost more than 50% genetic. That means that I cannot influence my BMI too much. And basically it comes down to genetics, but that's absolutely not what this number says. This number says hardly anything about you as an individual. Here's what it says. It says if you measure the BMI of a large group of people, the differences in BMI between those people can be explained by genetics to 70%. But this is the state as it is at the moment I measure. This is not what could be if I interfered. For example, if I take half of those people and I, I tell them every day, don't eat too much, do sports, then this number will change. So this is not a natural, a natural law for any trait, right? Even if the BMI was 99% genetic, right? You take a person, you don't give him or her food for a week, they will lose weight. It doesn't mean that it's not changeable just because this percentage is, is off. Mm. Of course, it could be harder. And then there are other factors and it tends to be all very comp. Nah, I don't, I, I don't want to go too much into that. <laughs> but I also wondered because, you know, there is this old, there is this old idea that some people have. And actually that's how it was in ancient textbooks that if you have a trait, then there's one gene to this trait. Like you have a gene for eye color, you have a gene for. Yeah. That's still what you learn in school, I believe. Yeah. Probably, but it's it's maybe like, like <laughs> it's it's maybe like you learn that you know you have you have protons and electrons swirling around it, which is also not true directly, but it's just a simple model that young people can understand. In fact, of course, it's much more complicated. But with genetics, you have for almost all human traits that are in any regard complex, or I would consider interesting. You have lots and lots of loci within your genome that partially determine this trait. For example, oh man, I hope I get this number correct. Yes, here's a topic that is very interesting for me if I look into my family, which is hair loss in men of a certain <laughs> age. One would consider maybe there's a gene for hair loss or not, but we know more than 300 genetic regions that influence whether you are going to lose your hair at a certain age or not. And those more than 300 regions, sorry, more than 70 regions, I had the wrong number. And those more than 70 regions don't even determine 40% of the effect. So things are complicated. And then we have even more complicated traits such as intelligence, which is an even much, I think, I, I think one third of my book I had to write about this because it's so complicated and people tend to get stuck in very wrong directions when thinking about heritability and intelligence. But basically to cut it short, yes, there is a heritable factor to it. And it's even quite a strong one, but the genetic basis of intelligence is so widespread throughout the whole genome that with more than 300 loci that we know to this point, even only explaining a small percentage of the percentage of heritability, that with current technology and everything that is inside now, we have no chance of influencing it significantly using genetics. So you can't design a very intelligent child if you want nah, to. No, you can make them stupid. That's easy. <sighs> but to take what is there Back and make it more intelligent. Back to ethics again, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brain I mean, new world. But here's the thing. If you want to make a child stupid, there's so much simpler ways to do that. Well, I remember Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, yeah. where they've 
pretty much just suffocated the embryo and then they were like yeah it's easy to make them stupid oh boy oh yeah well i mean it's factually right yeah here's what genes sometimes do with many traits they don't determine the level that you're gonna reach but sometimes they set an upper limit maybe it's easiest to consider with body height your genetic basis for your body height basically sets how tall you can become if you're nourished properly throughout your whole life. But it's very easy to make someone not reach his potential by just malnourishing this person Mm. in childhood. The same goes actually with intelligence. One of the reasons why IQ is growing so much in the whole world is because people suddenly tend to have food. That's good. Yeah, Yeah. that's a good thing. Yes, I agree. Fascinating stuff. And do you quickly want to say a sentence about wild mix, like who they are, what they do? <laughs> oh, yeah. There are a lot of people, basically, Tommy Krabweis. <laughs> the thing is, I, I hardly know anything about those people. I know that Tommy Krabweis, he's the inventor of Bernd das Brot, and he's making awesome music, and he's wearing funny hats. But besides that, I don't know much about him, except for that he's super smart. And the first time I saw him was on a skeptics conference. And the physicist next to me said, hey, that's Tommy Krabweis. I think he's very cool. And he's kind of hosting this online format on Twitch, which I also didn't know until this point, Uh, which as it turned out, is like the YouTube for for the kiddos. They use it for streaming online games or something or, or computer games. So once a week, every Tuesday, Tommy Krabweis and a bunch of other people, they change a little bit. So I'm not part of it every time. And also so are the others. They just come together and talk for two hours about a certain topic. Uh, last week, it was green foods and so on versus genetically modified foods. Tomorrow, Tuesday, it's always Tuesday. We're going to talk about science communication in general. And yeah, basically that's all I have to say about this format. I don't know. I think it's cool to listen to um, because it's just a lot of interesting people generally. Yeah, that's that's all I can say to that. Yeah. But let, let's put a, a link to that in, in the show notes so that people can find out. Actually, this is one, one thing I want to say. I think mm-hmm. this is what makes me very optimistic about science communication is that you have these long formats now. Because I always thought that's the major inhibitor of proper science communication are radio and television. I mean, they have good stuff, but the sheer fact that a few minutes of content costs so much money to them makes it hardly impossible to transport complex ideas where to grasp one point, one would have to talk 20 minutes or so. Uh, And that's what these formats, also like your podcast, uh, make possible. Yeah. Um, so that's what makes me most optimistic about science communication. It's not that better people than me will come along, but also that they will have formats where they can talk for two hours about one important point if it's necessary and it doesn't cost a cent to anyone. That's so cool. So uh, can you tell us your favorite scientific fact? Like uh, just a little um, just a little fact that surprises you and that always makes you happy. Yes, I recently learned that One of the guys who were among the most controversial, but also important people in science in the 19th century, uh, he's called Galton, Francis Galton, you know, he was, uh, he was a natural researcher. He was also a mathematician and he happened to be the father of eugenics, uh, which is bad, but he's also the father of statistics, which is good. He invented things such as correlation 
and such concepts that every scientist is using nowadays. And he was from Great Britain. So he was very into drinking tea. And for a long time, he tried to publish the science of making the perfect tea. But he failed. He never figured it out. So he went on to the next best thing and was thinking about the cake that he tends to eat with his uh, tea. And he had this massive issue where when he was cutting the cake, uh, he was never eating the whole cake at once. So he just put it besides fridge where fridges were not invented yet, uh, leaving it there till the next day. And on the next day, he was super frustrated because when he, he cut out the next triangle, the side that he had cut on the previous day was dry <laughs> and he couldn't bear it. So he sat down and he thought about this problem and he came to a solution and he actually wrote it to Nature, the most prestigious scientific journal on the planet, and they've <laughs> published it. So he came up with this other idea of how to properly cut a cake. And here's how you do it. You start from almost the middle and you cut out one straight piece right from the middle. You cut right through the cake, two cuts, and you take uh. out a linear piece, all right? And then you've put the other you push uh, the it together. parts together. Ah, yes, you put them together. That's genius. And that's genius. And then you turn it, you know, and you can cut out... <laughs> something from the middle again and the cake gets smaller and smaller and you never have an open side and nature actually published this he even you know he illustrated it and it looks very cool and this guy i don't know i think that's my favorite scientific piece and i'm, I'm also into this guy right besides the fact that he's the father of eugenics but he was just so crazy in the head because he measured everything and before you know his his cousin was charles darwin But before this guy invented the evolutionary theory, Galton had this massive scientific potential and did not know what to do with it. <laughs> so he was just measuring everything he could. He was walking around the British islands and always writing down how hot the women were that he saw just to have a map of hotness of the British islands. And he was also, he was also visiting the lectures of his colleagues And he was writing down the angle in which the heads of the students were tilted in order to derive from that who is giving the most boring lectures at his university. <laughs> so he was probably not the most famous guy there. But I don't know. I think, you know, and that's what I mean. I think you need those crazy people because sometimes they come up with good things. I'm not talking about eugenics here, but about correlation statistics, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great. Fantastic. I think that's a great note to end this interview on. <laughs> Crazy people just being <laughs> fanatical about something they really care about and coming up with new <laughs> solutions to problems that nobody even had time to think <laughs> about before. So uh, if, if people want to know more about yourself and what you do, where, where can they go online? Uh, I guess I'm mostly active on Instagram. There's, there's nothing with informational content there, but... Mm -hmm. If you want to write me something, just put put my name Martin Mode on Instagram or, or something like this. And then you can see what I'm eating every day. <laughs> and how you cut your cake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Great. Thank you very much, nice. Martin Moder. It's been a pleasure having you. Very entertaining. And uh, we... Uh, Well, what, one more question, though. What, what's next for Science Busters? What are you working on right now? <laughs> yeah, so basically the Corona show we just uh, played the first time uh, last week. 
or I played it the first time. We played in, in deep, with different people. And we have a show about global warming that is called Global Warming Party, which is basically, it's, it's, it's finished. We can play it anytime, but it's illegal to play in most places at the moment because of Corona. So we're just waiting <laughs> for, you know, the Russians to turn on their vaccine machine even more. Oh boy. No. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> moment. Oh no, don't let me start on that. But, but ba basically we have enough to do that we can do the moment it's allowed to do again. Oh. Great, great. Sounds good. <laughs> thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Well, thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yes, so that was the interview with Martin Motor. I think, what did you think, Annika? I found it really interesting. He's definitely very smart. So it was really interesting to listen to see how he sees things and his perspective also as a biologist to current issues and also things that happen in science and skepticism so yeah I, I found it really interesting and, and nice yeah and I, I think it's really cool it actually ties back a little bit to the panel debate I was in uh, about science communication because that came up as well how important it is to have people like Martin Moder who can actually form a sentence and be good communicator and at the same time work with uh, genetics and molecular biology and things that are a little bit above uh, people's normal comfort zone. But I, I think he is an example that, that you can actually find people who can both be very verbal, very communicative and still be very smart scientists. And, and that's what we need. That's what we want. Definitely. It's a, yeah, it was a pleasure to, to do the interview. And I hope it's also, or it was also a pleasure for you listeners to listen to. <laughs> yeah. And, and we also got into a little bit of uh, philosophy. And uh, that's interesting. Maybe that's a topic we should explore a little bit more in the future, Annika. Yeah, we, we should definitely because we just noticed how important it is and also where the limits um, sometimes are mm. of science and of ethics and where they all connect and where the limits are of all these connections. So yeah, that's definitely something we want to we wanna check out. Yes, we already have some ideas, but we won't spoil anything right now. But maybe we'll get back to this topic of philosophy and science a little bit further on. Yeah, we just want you to still feel a suspense. <laughs> ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I still want, dear listeners, to leave you in this suspenseful situation. I think we will just should wrap up this show... I thank Martin Moda, of course, and I thank you, Pontus, very much for being here with me today. Thank you. And thank you, dear listeners. Thanks for listening to us. Please continue to tune into the show and we'll see or listen to each other next week. Yeah, and I think maybe we will have Andras with us next week. Maybe we will have our prodigal son <laughs> back. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, have a good time, everybody, and goodbye. Hey, do. Tschüss. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, Please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. 
We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Frab and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. I, I usually say that to our interview victims that we will make you sound intelligent in the edit. Oh, good luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The center of molecular, blah, blah, blah. molecular is a difficult word. I may have to retake that. Uh, stupid so, molecules. Stupid molecules. That's right. Oh yeah, I'm afraid I don't remember enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know the basically 90% of what he said is bullshit, but that's that's not su- sufficient information to share. <laughs> yeah, then maybe we just cut this question out. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, no, we we'll, no, we'll... leave it in. Leave it in. I think it's actually uh, maybe it summarizes uh, a lot. No, uh, no. In a certain I promise. Of time. I promise to make you sound intelligent. So, so <laughs> some things will go out. <laughs> yeah, but intelligence is also a sign of like knowing when you don't know something. So, <laughs> uh, oh, fair enough. <laughs>